You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. North Korea's APT-37 deploys Fade Stealer to steal information from its targets. Apple patches vulnerabilities under active exploitation. Access to a U.S. satellite is being hawked in a Russophone cybercrime forum. Russian hacktivist auxiliaries say they've disrupted IFC.org, unmasking pig-butchering scams. Social engineering as a method of account takeover. Fraudsters are seen abusing generative AI. Sergey Medved from Quest Software describes the great cloud repatriation. Mark Ryland of AWS speaks with Rick Howard about software-defined perimeters and embedded URLs in malware. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. On Labs describes a cyber espionage campaign by North Korea's APT-37, which deploys a new information-gathering tool, Fade Stealer, against its target. The gang's scope seems to cover surveillance of individuals in South Korea whom Pyongyang regards as actually or potentially hostile, North Korean defectors, human rights activists, and university professors. The gang, known also by names that include Starcruft, Reaper, and Red Eyes, begins their attack with a spear-phishing email baited with a password-protected document. Executing the included CHM file also executes PowerShell malware that installs a backdoor. An auto-run registry key enables the malware to maintain persistence. The next stage involves the installation of a second backdoor, Ably Go backdoor, which, as its name suggests, exploits the legitimate Golang-based Ably platform. Ably Go enables subsequent privilege escalation, exfiltration, and malware installation. Fade Stealer includes eavesdropping functionality, taking control of the affected device's microphone to collect ambient speech and other sounds. Apple has patched two security flaws that were used in hacks against thousands of Russian devices, the Washington Post reports. Russia's Federal Security Service, also known as the FSB, has attributed this campaign to the United States National Security Agency, but there's no evidence of NSA's involvement apart from the FSB's accusation. The FSB itself has refrained from explaining how they reached their conclusion. An Apple spokesperson told CyberScoop that the company has never worked with any government 
to insert a backdoor into any Apple product and never will. In its security update, Apple says the hack allowed for the execution of arbitrary code with kernel privileges. Sophos writes that the two vulnerabilities have been patched in Apple's latest update on all devices, with the possible exception of tvOS, which the cybersecurity firm says may just have yet to receive an update. It is strongly advised that those with Apple devices update as soon as possible. HackRead reports that a Russian-speaking hacker is offering access to a Maxar Technologies U.S. military satellite for $15,000. The account posting the offer, Labs666, offers to receive funds through the trusted third-party payment service Escrow. It's difficult to know what to make of the claim, which seems a little excessive for credibility. Russian website Dizen.ru reported that the so-called Darknet Parliament, composed of Kilnet, Anonymous Sudan, and R-Evil, claims to have taken down the International Finance Corporation's website, ifc.org. The attack started yesterday morning, and the hacktivist auxiliaries called the DDoS attack just the beginning. The Telegram pages for the associated groups are notably light on the usual updates regarding their cyber activities, with Killnet posting a statement that is unusually modest of the group, saying that, unfortunately, IFC is no longer working, says Killnet. The claims await confirmation. It's worth noting that DZN.ru is clearly editorially on the side of the Russian hacktivist auxiliaries. The outlet refers to the groups as Our Valiant Anonymous Sudan and Killnet lending more circumstantial credibility to the conclusion that Anonymous Sudan is a Russian front group. Krebs on Security has described in detail Cryptor.biz, one of the more popular crypting services available to the criminal underworld. Crypting, Krebs on Security explains, is disguising or crypting your malware so that it appears benign to antivirus and security products. Cryptor.biz is a tried-and-true crypting service, recommended by Redline Stealer and Vidar as one of the more reliable places a criminal can go to get malware crypted. Krebs on Security tracks email addresses involved with Cryptor.biz and links these in turn to usernames and websites associated with a particular individual. As Krebs on Security puts it, it makes a lot of sense for cybersecurity researchers and law enforcement alike to focus attention on the top players in the crypting space for several reasons. The most critical reason, Krebs writes, is that the threat actors recommending the use of the cryptor tend to be among the most experienced and connected malicious coders on the planet. Trend Micro has published a report with their latest take on pig butchering, a type of cryptocurrency scam in which victims are tricked into investing in fraudulent cryptocurrencies. The flow of a pig butchering scam begins with the addition of potential victims to a fake chat group on investing. The firm writes that if a victim shows interest in investing, the conversation evolves into a one-on-one chat. From there, the victim is introduced to a fake brokerage service and prompted to transfer funds to its website. This cycle repeats itself as new victims find their place in the grasp of the malicious actor. The researchers determined that one group of pig-butchering scammers made nearly $4 million between January and March of 2023. Avanon outlines a social engineering attack in which threat actors compromise a victim's work email account and use the account to request a payroll information change. 
This specific attack sees threat actors posing as company employees reaching out to their respective HR departments, requesting a change in the bank account associated with their direct deposit. Avanon notes that people change banks all the time. Sometimes people want the money split into multiple accounts. Whatever it is, it's not unusual to receive this sort of request. SIFT has released its second quarter of 2023 Digital Trust and Safety Index, focused on fighting fraud in the age of AI automation and discussing the use of generative AI in social engineering schemes and the fears from consumers surrounding the new technology. The fears aren't entirely groundless. SIFT writes that within the last six months, 68% of consumers noticed an increase in the frequency of spam and scams, likely driven by the surge in AI-generated content. The company's data also shows a 40% jump in blocked fraudulent content from 2022 to the first quarter of 2023. This increase is anticipated to continue into the future. The threat associated with AI is that it lowers the barrier to entry for fraud and social engineering scams. There's an easy plausibility to the language it generates that outdoes the text non-native or even less gifted native speakers produce. And finally, cybersecurity firm CoFence has found that compromised domains make up over half of embedded URLs used to deliver malware. Compromised domains, the firm says, are accessible by actors of varying skill levels, are effective at bypassing secure email gateways, and are somewhat effective at fooling potential victims. Abused domains, such as those using Google Docs or Microsoft OneDrive, made up 37% of embedded URLs. These domains are highly effective but short-lived due to quick detection by the hosting services. Domains that were created by the threat actors themselves accounted for just 11% of embedded URLs. The researchers note that created domains are typically used by more advanced threat actors, are not highly effective at bypassing secure email gateways, and are highly effective at tricking victims. So make sure that the website you're using to buy your newest swimsuit for the summer will only take your money and not any of your sensitive data. Actually, receiving the swimsuit would be nice, too. Coming up after the break, Sergey Medved from Quest Software describes the great cloud repatriation. Mark Ryland from AWS speaks with Rick Howard about software-defined perimeters. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. 
Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. Sergey Medved is VP of Product Management at Quest Software, provider of cloud management services, among other offerings, I spoke with him about a trend he and his colleagues are tracking of clients moving some critical assets back on-prem, what some are calling the great cloud repatriation. A lot of companies are evaluating costs. A lot of companies are evaluating their security posture. And uh, this IT environment is is a living organism in a sense that things are changing every year. And so that naturally is putting some CISOs and CIOs into a spot where they're starting to look at at their cloud strategies and reevaluate them. Can you give us some specific examples of some of the things that are uh, making CISOs take a closer look at this? Yeah, the biggest trend, I think, several years ago was obviously security. So a lot of public cloud providers either did not have the capabilities to support latest regulatory requirements, for example, HIPAA or country-specific data storage rules, that has changed, right? And so I think we're now seeing a shift uh, towards cost where, again, the CIOs and very often it's a board conversation as well are realizing that a lot of the applications that they migrated into the cloud in the past, maybe some of them don't really necessarily have to be there. And that's uh, taking a toll on both the cost side of, of the things, but also on the user experience, because we're seeing more and more of that, those hybrid environments where your data perhaps is uh, on-premise and some of the applications are running in the cloud. And so there is obviously this data latency issue, but also, as I said, cost. The cloud provider cost has been fairly flat relatively in the last several years, but the cost of you know buying servers or real estate and data centers or um, power supplies has been trending down steadily in the, in the last decade or so. And so, again, if, you, if you're if you in a CIO position, if you look at it, you start to reevaluate and realizing that in many cases, it may be more cost efficient for you to run your workloads, some of the workloads on premise. What are some of the specific uh, types of data that folks are finding they want to pull back to be on-prem? 
Well, it comes when it comes to regulation, right? It's anything that's HIPAA compliant, for example, data or P, PCI, right? Payments related data. That's that's pretty clear for a lot of non-regulated industries. So outside maybe of finance and uh, and healthcare, we're seeing a lot of intellectual property data or sensitive data that that customers are starting to look to move into uh, their private clouds or on-prem, right? If you are, for example, BMW or, or another you know, big major company where 20 or 50 years ago, your competitive position was how quickly you could produce cars and, and you know, put them in the hands of the customers. Now it's more about the innovation that you're doing at your company, right? So every manufacturing company these days is a technology company. And so technology is all about data. So you need to be looking at what, which data is truly, you know, the core of your business and which data you want to protect. And so that can be anything around the intellectual property, the designs, maybe if you're a car manufacturer or if you're a services provider, it can be your customer data as well. Is there a concern about uh, added complexity here when you're running a hybrid operation? Absolutely, absolutely. So at the end of the day, you're balancing between cost and customer experience. Because if you just go and you try to reduce cost and that's your primary goal and objective, then you probably would end up with a, an on-prem you know, data center somewhere. But at the end of the day, your customer experience is also equally important, whether it's your external customer or your, you know, you're serving your internal customers, your, your employees, say it's an HR system or whatnot. And so we're doing software development. And so for the CIOs, it's, it's a balancing act. Uh, it's making sure that the applications that you, whether you put them into the cloud or they're on-premise, the latency of those applications is acceptable. The data is flowing you know, quickly between them. You're not uh, suffering from outages because you know, if you put data in or your applications between the cloud, the hybrid environment cloud and on-prem, you're just expanding both the attack surface from a cybersecurity standpoint, but you're also expanding your sort of the weak spots of your architecture or the points of failure. Do you suppose we'll see some ebb and flow with this between the the cloud providers and the on-prem providers? You know, I, I could imagine a a waves back and forth of, you know, as, as cloud got more popular than the on-prem got less expensive because it wasn't as much in demand. But now if we're swinging back to on-prem, maybe the demand makes that a little more expensive and cloud prices go down. Do you think there's anything to that line of thinking? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, it's ebbs and flows. Um, again, with hyperscalers in the past, they've taken steps to meet government and industry requirements. Um, so specific cloud services are now available from major players, um, available for classified data, HIPAA compliance, government data, country-specific requirements, especially um, in some Asian countries and in Europe. And this allows for many of the businesses to, again, reconsider moving data back into the cloud in some cases, right? Storing your backups, for example, is a good is a good example. Very often... You, in the past, the companies kind of flocked to the cloud and they realized that there is a risk of misconfiguration in the cloud, right? Something that would place your data, your backups in the cloud at risk. They moved it to, um, you know, on-premise to their uh, private clouds and private environments. 
Now, again, they're starting to look back at the cloud offerings because Azure, Microsoft, and AWS, Amazon, and Google have, Google have stepped up their game in offering net new, new um, capabilities that uh, allow customers to store their data in sort of an immutable way. What are your recommendations for people to come at this, to, to be able to properly set their priorities and, and balance their approach here? It's all about planning at the end of the day. A large um, uh, companies like Gartner and Forrester are doing a lot of advisory in this, in this space. And uh, I think Gartner even has a, a market guide for it. But at the end of the day, again, without purpose of planning, the cloud can be more expensive. It can be less secure. So that's the result. The cloud repatriation is the result of it. So proper road mapping for the workloads proper planning for migrations when companies move their data, whether it's on-premise or to the cloud. Uh, that's a key component of making sure that the future workloads and the data are both secure and delivering on the promise of the customer experience and cost. That's Sergey Medved from Quest Software. In our continuing series of interviews, my CyberWire colleague Rick Howard gathered at the recent AWS Reinforce conference. Rick checks in with Mark Ryland of AWS. The topic of their conversation is software-defined perimeters. The CyberWire is an Amazon Web Services media partner, and in June 2023, Jen Iben, the CyberWire senior producer, and I traveled to the magical world of Disneyland in Anaheim, California, to attend their AWS Reinforced Conference and talk with senior leaders about the latest developments in securing the Amazon Cloud. I got to sit down with Mark Ryland, the Director of the Office of the Chief Information Security Officer at AWS, to talk about Amazon's version of a software-defined perimeter, a concept that I've been talking about for a few years now that can greatly enhance any organization's zero-trust journey. Amazon calls their version verified access, coupled with a specially designed open source authorization language that they call Cedar. There's a number of use cases that when we think about zero trust, we kind of break it into sort of three general use cases. One is human access to applications. Another is software to software scenarios where, again, you want even your software to be validated each time it calls in, say, another microservice. And then there's another kind of broad category that we can think of as either I, IoT or industrial IoT or, you know, kind of uh, that, that whole topic of, again, it's a software-to-software scenario, but it's often involving mm-hmm. things like, you know, factory floor operations, smart highways, smart buildings, all that kind of part. And that also is considered, you know, broadly speaking, one of the primary use cases. So in that first use case, which is a very uh, common one and one with a lot of focus is I have human users, they need to access... Um, applications, typically like enterprise apps. And historically, we would do that with VPN technology, right? So you log into a VPN, now I'm inside the CorpNet, and now I have the same access as I was on the physical network. But again, often that access is very broad mm-hmm. and very, maybe inappropriately broad. And so, in, hi- in hindsight, it's ridiculous that we did it that way, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's right. Uh, although, although we do have in our princi- uh, principal engineering uh, 
community at, at, at Amazon, we have a tenant, which is respect what went before. <laughs> so you have to understand okay. there were probably reasons that made sense uh, at the time. <laughs> uh, but in any case, you're right. And so what uh, Verified Access does is it, it gives you that, um, think of it as a, a smart proxy capability that you're, you, you come with your identity. So you use mm-hmm. your SAML token or your OIDC token that you got from Okta or Azure AD or some identity provider, and you show up at this uh, edge capability and say, hey, I want to access this enterprise application. And there we run a series of security checks on every, each and every request. So again, it's this constant, constantly being verified. Things like device health, you know, network location, all these different parameters, identity, the claims that come in through mm-hmm. the identity provider, augmenting those claims with other kinds of trust signals. And then we run the Cedar policy. And Cedar is a very exciting launch as well. This, yeah, this, goes hand in hand. Right? This week, which yeah. is we're both using it inside our services, but also open sourcing the language and the runtime so that anyone can use it, which is a, a very optimized authorization language. Um, and the Cedar policy then will tell you, you know, and that's kind of the security team has decided from under what circumstances can users, you know, do, if you have an MFA, you can do certain things. If you don't, you, there's other things you could do. You make those initial kind of high-level authorization decisions. Then you pass the identity claims back to the backend application, which then kind of runs as perhaps as it did before, say, as if you'd VPN'd in. Um, now, over time, we, we, we expect that customers will begin to externalize authorization decisions of their apps also using Cedar right. and another service we launched, which we call uh, Verified Permissions. So you can think of Verified Permissions as a service where if I'm up writing or rewriting an enterprise app, I will externalize authorization from my business logic. Take it out of my business logic. That's not where it belongs. Mm-hmm. It should be in a system designed specifically for permissioning. And AVP, Amazon Verified Permissions, is that service. Again, it's a Cedar language, um, central control of your policies and management of policies. But um, the business logic is no longer, uh, you know, the, the authorization is no longer embedded in business logic, which is which is a, a, a much better way to build enterprise apps. So let me try to summarize what Cedar is. It's a programming language designed specifically to handle IAM functions, right? And doesn't do anything else. It's just you know, Mark is authorized to get to this work so, workforce, and Rick isn't, kind of things, right? right. And you might ask a reasonable question, do we, did we need to invent another one? There are a couple of them out there. Yeah. You, you and I have a little bit of gray hair, yeah. so we yeah. remember Zacamole, which yeah. has been around for ages. Yeah. And um, more recently, the OPA, mm-hmm. Open Policy Agent, has a, a language called Rego. We looked hard at those. We didn't really want to invent something new, but we decided this was such an important area, and for very specific reasons, those just don't, didn't really meet the requirements. We also have a, a third thing option, right? We have an IAM policy language mm-hmm. uh, for, our, for our APIs, and that was another option. But looking at all those options, and made, we made you know, a very strategic decision that this is so important that we really have to build a, a very optimized language, optimized in a couple of ways. Number one, the language itself has got to be expressive and easy to read, but not too expressive. Because if you give someone kind of a Turing complete language, mm. you can write things like loops that never end. Yeah, and, yeah. which and, I've done many times. Yeah, <laughs> in my younger days. Yes, and so you, it has to. You have to be able to prove that these are programs that will stop executing at some point, and if they won't, then you reject them in your in your language verification. And that's the other key point: is that we, the team that built this, was half software engineers with expertise in authorization systems, and it was half um, formal verification computer scientists, people mm-hmm. that do this kind of um, you know, automated reasoning, we call it, or formal verification. 
applying their expertise to both the design of the language so that the language itself can be form- the, the, the intent you express can be formally verified as you essentially upload it uh, and reject it if it for some reason doesn't have right. the proper computational constraints. But the implementation of the language is also formally verified. So every time we do a code check or a build of this new feature or whatever, then there's a bunch of formal verification proofs that run against every single code change. So we've used it both to make uh, to increase the certainty of the correctness of our implementation, but also to uh, it was the design of the Cedar language was heavily influenced by the need of formal verification. So that makes it, I think, quite unique. Um, so the Cedar uh, language in what was the name of the product again? Verified access. Thank you. Yeah, it's only for Amazon right now. Is there you guys looking over the horizon so you might be able to use the same ideas for other kinds of services? That Absolutely. Are, yeah. yeah, and and it's already seeing uh, uptake in the open source community. Where mm-hmm. there's a, a couple of ISVs out there that already have adopted it for their kind mm-hmm. of authorization as a service uh, um, systems that yeah. that they're they have in market. Um, and that's very exciting to see. And we, we help customers use it internally. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't use our cloud service, just use the, this very high quality, very you know, carefully engineered open source um, language and set of libraries and tests and proofs and so forth that you can just build right into your application if you want to do that. So we're, we're very excited about you know, kind of helping the industry to solve a problem. One other thing I'll mention is that you know there's been this long-going debate about you know role-based access control versus attribute-based access control, and Cedar was designed very consciously to support both models yeah. very it's well. Not, it's not it's not an either or. Come yes, on, exactly. <laughs> just do what you got to do. Yeah. That's Mark Ryland from AWS speaking with the CyberWire's Rick Howard. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. 
Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by Rachel Gelfand. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. <laughs>